In this Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with Professor Chad Briggs in Washington, D.C. as he prepares to leave for Manila to start a new post in disaster risk. We discuss the intricacies of how the U.S. military perceives climate risk and how the U.S. government is making bold statements at U.N. climate conferences, but committing to destructive new oil and gas extraction policies back at home. Chad highlights an absence of climate expertise in Washington, D.C., left over from the Trump administration, leading to a dangerous narrative that we can keep burning fossil fuels because new technology will ultimately solve the atmospheric carbon issue. This 10-minute edit is a summary version, edited from the full interview. The 27-minute episode is available for YouTube and Patreon members. Viewing stats state that the average audience listening time is 10 minutes, so this edited version captures key elements of the discussion. Members receive the full versions in advance of the shorter edits. In the next episode, I speak with Sir David King from the Climate Crisis Advisory Group in the UK about the dramatic changes in Antarctic sea ice and global climate policy. I also discuss the dramatic retreat of the insurance industry in the US with former White House advisor Dr. Alice Hill. For all Food and Water tier members, it's worth checking out the 2012 EGU press conference uploaded from the archive featuring Dr. Michael Mann, Dr. James Hansen and Dr. Michael Gill. Here is a clip from Jim Hansen on why we needed to take action then and why we should definitely not wait another decade. We, the world, uh, are going after every fossil fuel we can find. Tar sands, tar shale, Arctic drilling, deep ocean drilling, mountaintop removal. But we can't do that without guaranteeing that we cause, we push the climate system in, in a direction into a place where we will be handing to our children uh, a climate system that's practically out of their control. Because if we, if we even wait 10 years to begin to reduce emissions, then you would have, in order to restore energy balance by the end of the century, you'd have to reduce emissions 15% a year. That's just not plausible. So we, it's, it's absurd that governments are just ignoring this and just allowing... Uh, the continued uh, pursuit and extraction of every fossil fuel that we can find. Not only are we allowing it, but we're subsidizing it at a tune between 400 and 500 billion dollars a year. Hi, Chad. It's very good to see you again. Yes, thank uh, you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Can you outline some of the characteristics of the national security framing that influence policymaking and even how climate action is perceived through this sort of lens in the U.S.? So the media portrayal of it, and I don't mean specifically just the formal media, but even what comes up, I think, in just normal narratives when people discuss this, is the idea that if you have increased climate change, then you're going to have breakdown of ecosystems, you're, you're going to have people moving, this migration and destabilization is going to cause more conflict. But interestingly, that's not how the Pentagon has ever seen it. The Pentagon and other government agencies have always seen climate security. You can either have it in terms of legalistic framework, meaning that security exists because we are following the law. And it still holds true in the courts, even though I think it's fallen out of the narrative. Americans have seemed to have forgotten that we have a, a quite unique 
legal system that helps protect the environment in ways that other countries simply don't. It gives legal standing, for example, to uh, environmental resources. You, know, you can speak on behalf of the trees and you don't have to be damaged yourself, which is something that just wouldn't exist in the European Court of Justice. But then finally, you have the human security approach to things. And counterintuitively, that's how, for example, the US Department of Defense sees things, is that they don't go straight to saying, well, these two countries have disagreements over environmental issues, so therefore they're going to go to war. But we do have to worry about what happens to the people who are living in those countries. So if there is migration, why is there migration? What happens to the people who are left behind? What does that mean in terms of foreign relations? What does it mean in terms of the humanitarian actions that either the United States or the UN or their allies have to take? Uh, what does it mean in terms of disaster response? And since the US military carries out so many disaster response policies, especially in areas like Asia Pacific, then that's a major concern. So if there's increasing climate issues, if there's increasing severity of storms and typhoons and flooding and sea level rise and all the different things mixed together, what does that mean for our operations? And so operationally, they're worried about it, but from a human security level, they're not going straight to saying things like, well, the drought in Syria caused the civil war because they still want to be able to point the fingers at people like Assad and say, look, that's the reason why there was conflict, right? You'd... Can you talk a little bit about absence of mitigation enforcement through, through that national security lens? Our work for the military really focused on the adaptation and response. Uh, mitigation was viewed as a largely political issue, and so something that the, the military was a little hesitant to get into. It didn't necessarily affect their operations, or if it did, they were afraid that it would affect them negatively. Uh, the U.S. Air Force, for example, is the single largest user of fuel in the world. And any discussion of mitigation, because there's only so much that you can do with an aircraft to make it more fuel efficient. And so if you start cutting back on fuel use, eventually that means that you're cutting back on flight hours. And since all the senior U.S. Air Force officials are all pilots, that immediately translates into, well, this makes us less than what we are. And we don't want to be like what happened to a number of European countries where the pilots simply didn't have enough flight hours to be current to go into combat situations. So they were really reluctant to get into it. They've started coming out now with roadmaps for how each one of the service branches will start to mitigate. But again, it's it's marginal, right? They're not going to have any ideas of saying, well, the US Air Force is going to be net zero by 2050, because they simply don't see that as technologically possible. And without the technology there, they're not going to just wave their arms and say, well, let's just assume the technology will exist within 20 years, and, and then we'll adopt it. If it does come up, I, I, I think perhaps, but in the Navy, because with Navy, you can use different propulsion systems. But yeah, the Air Force, it was it was always a hard sell and not something they ever wanted to discuss, really. How has the Biden administration responded to the dis and misinformation of the Trump era in terms of staffing up administrative agencies, the, the level of personnel? Well, uh, there's some detail I don't want to go into. But in general, I can say that from what I could see, most of the experts who left during the Trump administration had not been replaced for whatever reason. Yeah, the EPA is trying to staff back up, but they're already bare bones compared to where they were five, six years ago. That's made trying to tackle dis and misinformation much more difficult. As many of the newspapers have reported, the Biden administration had already approved more oil and gas extraction permits than the Trump administration had during their first two years. And there's really disconnect between what's said at the COP meetings 
what's understood by the American public and the policies that the American public see. So people can go abroad and whether it's John Kerry or Joe Biden, they can say, yes, climate change is an existential threat to the United States and then come back and they say it's for legalistic purposes, but they approve these large oil and gas extraction projects like we've seen in Alaska with the, the Willow Project. Um, and they've just signaled now that they may go ahead with supporting, there's a large LNG project that would go from Northern Canada pipeline all the way um, to South Central, and then an LNG export from there to other parts of Asia Pacific, which having lived in Alaska for a number of years uh, is, is an absolutely incredibly crazy project. I know crazy isn't really an academic term, but uh, it fits in this, you know, you have to build a 1200 kilometer pipeline just to get the stuff there. And this is over large areas of land in, in which you have semi-contiguous permafrost, all of which is melting at this point. And it just doesn't work very well, not to mention the fact that it's a $40 billion project. And that's the initial estimate. Of course, it's probably double that by the time that it's finally been built, and none of which would benefit the Alaska economy, simply because of the way that taxes are, and income and, and workers are set up there. So why would we want this in the first place? You know, th those are the sorts of questions that come out from the environmental groups, because we see the rhetoric, we see what was promised during the election, but the actual policies are moving in opposite directions. Do you think that's an underlying belief in all of this, that we are going to somehow start sucking this stuff out of the air in the billions uh, it, of tons? It is. I think there is this persistent belief that somehow there will be these magical technological fixes that will come up and will solve everything. Politicians are already being sold this idea that carbon capture and storage already takes 90% of basically carbon dioxide out of our plant emissions, or can anyway, and then sequester them away forever. But like I said, once you do the full carbon budget of this is really energy intensive technology, there are other sorts of pollutants. So you, know, you, you can put this sort of technology on a smokestack but then that means building another power plant. And once you take those emissions into account and everything else, then it just, you know, you're looking at 10 to 20%, maybe that's taking out. And that's not even countering the idea that, well, maybe the carbon doesn't stay sequestered forever in the first place. It doesn't seem that there's another option being considered when people like Biden are signing off more licenses it's everywhere else in the world as well that's continuing with this direction. And I think this year we're headed for some pretty serious impacts. Yeah, I, I think increasingly we're just going to be putting out fires, uh, literally and metaphorically. And certainly that's what, from a security standpoint, the military is going to be focusing on. They'll try to deal a bit with mitigation in their own branches, at least in terms of the U.S. military, but they won't—they will not get involved in discussions of mitigation of anyone else. They'll avoid all those sorts of politics. Absolutely. From a climate security standpoint, I'm personally just accepted a full-time job where I'm going to be just focusing on disasters because I'm like, well, that—that's where we've moved now, right? I'm, I'm not talking hypothetically about things where this is just what we mm. have to do on a day-to-day -day basis now. Is is just to think about these not in terms of future risks, but now they're disasters and now they're occurring and now they're feeding into all the other disasters. And so my job is to try to figure out how do we mix climate into things which traditionally we haven't thought were connected. So you know, how do you mix tsunamis? in with climate change into something more than simply looking at a few millimeters rise in sea level? Or how does it fit into traditional security threats like the South China Sea? And you now have this emergence of what 
Brooke Minkowski would call the climate warlords, people who are actively cheering for some sort of climate breakdown. And there was just an article in, um, came out in Gris this morning, I think, that was talking about how the Oath Keepers, who were behind many of the January 6 actions against the US government two years ago, they're actively involved in disaster response. That's how they see their, their role now in many parts of the US, that they will show up after a hurricane and then they feed into this idea of we're here and where's the government, which fits the same model of what, say, the Taliban did in, in Pakistan. But it's undermining traditional resilience in order to bolster political power. But we see so many scenarios now playing out where climate change is actively encouraged because people can either profit off of it. And maybe this is, you know, the oil and gas company playbook. Let's just bank as many dollars and pounds as we can while we can. And this isn't conspiratorial. I've had oil executives like from ConocoPhillips who are in charge of, say, the Willow Project, who admit privately anyway that their business model sees getting out of Alaska another 10, maybe 20 years. But if there is a move towards electrification, there's no need for them to be there because it'll simply be too expensive. They're cheaper places to get oil and gas in the United States. So they'll just make profit off of what they can while they can, and then they'll leave. And just like the North Sea, there, there'll be all the infrastructure left behind with no one responsible for it. That's someone else's problem. Yeah, it's a nil-sum game. And that's where we, we seem to be happy to cruise towards. Well, look, I think that that's a good place to finish. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll... <laughs> leave on the most negative point. Okay. But... <laughs> <laughs> well...